the book of Zephaniah. It's okay at this point to use Bible tabs or the table of contents in the Bible, okay? I know that uh, Zephaniah is not one that we go to very often, but he is where we have arrived at today. This morning, what do you fear the most? What do you fear the most? And also, what do you look forward to the most? What do you fear the most and what do you look forward to the most? And then as a follow-up question to those, do those things affect how you live your life today? When you think about what you fear the most, you think about what you look forward to the most, do those things affect how you live your life on a daily basis? This morning we continue our journey through the storyline of the Bible and we come to the book of Zephaniah. And I imagine that many of you have probably never heard a sermon from the book of Zephaniah. I know up until about uh, 30 seconds from now, I will never have heard a sermon from the book of Zephaniah. Uh, And you may not have even read the book of Zephaniah, but you need to know that Zephaniah is unique in at least two ways, both of which are highlighted in the opening verse. We read, the son of Cushi, the son of... Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. He said, that doesn't sound that special to me. Well, that gives us all the historical markers that we need to know to understand that, first of all, Zephaniah himself was from the royal line of David. In fact, he was the only prophet who was in the royal line of David. But more importantly... Because we know that he is ministering in the days of Josiah, King Josiah, Zephaniah was the last of the pre-exilic prophets. What that simply means is his was the last message to come to God's people in the southern tribe of Judah before they were sent into exile by the Lord in 586 B.C. His message is the last to go out to God's people before judgment fell on them for their sins. So he is the one who gives the final warning. He is the one who calls them to live in light of the most terrifying and the most glorious event of humanity's future, the day of the Lord. Now, as we have been tracking through the books of the Bible, typically we have, uh, because of their length, if nothing else, we have looked mainly at one text. But because of the size of Zephaniah, we're going to cover just about the entire book this morning. And so by way of introduction, though, I I do want to read uh, part of uh, Zephaniah chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 14. The prophet says, The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. This is the word of God. Zephaniah speaks of the great day of the Lord, but what is this day? 
and we've got some picture of it here, a very intense picture. Is that all we know about it? What will this day be like? And why should Israel live in light of this coming day? Well, this theme of the day of the Lord is seen in several of the prophets, but like no other here in Zephaniah where his entire book is wrapped up with explaining what this day of the Lord is going to be like. And as we look at this book, the prophecy of Zephaniah, we will see three characteristics of this day of the Lord that not only should have affected the way Israel lived in light of hearing this message, but should also affect how we live today. And so let's look at these three things. First, we want to see this. The day of the Lord brings God's wrath. The day of the Lord brings God's wrath. Here is a constant theme that we have been seeing throughout all the prophetic books that we have looked at so far. And really, we've seen it throughout the entire Old Testament up to this point. God is a holy God, and He will not tolerate sin. And though that may not be a popular message, it is the message of the Bible. And the ultimate outworking of that intolerance of sin is God's very wrath. Here specifically, Zephaniah is picking up on the themes that have been laid out by these other prophets that come before him as he talks about this wrath that is to come. And he says that when God pours out his judgment, he will first pour it out on his people Israel. God's wrath will fall on Israel. And he goes on to give some very specific sins uh, that, that, that he mentions here of Israel. The biggest and in some ways the most foundational sin is that of idolatry. The worship of false gods. In verse 4 he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Along with the false gods, the worship of the Lord himself was tainted. God says, on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. He says, you've got the idolatrous priests, the priests of false gods like Baal and Moloch that are inside my land and my people. I'm going to deal with them, but I'm also going to deal with the regular priests who worship wrongly. Specifically, he talked about those who leap over the threshold. Now, what does that mean? What in the world is Zephaniah talking about? What is the Lord talking about when he talks about leaping over the threshold? Well, I think here's one of those cases where you've got to know the Bible to get the reference. You may remember back when we looked at the book of 1 Samuel, uh, we talked about how the Philistines had captured the ark in battle. Do you remember that the people of Israel were not living as they should and they expected the ark to, to serve almost like a talisman? That as long as we have this thing, nothing can, can defeat us. The problem was they had no faith in God. They had no love for Him. And so they were not only whooped, but God allowed the Philistines to take the ark back as a treasure uh, from battle. And what did they do? They put it in the pagan temple of their God, Dagon. And you'll remember, even though his people had sinned, God would not let his name go unglorified. And you'll remember, they put the, the ark next to Dagon and Dagon's temple. And the next day they come back, and what's happened? Dagon's tipped over. Their false god is on his face. And the priests are like, oh, no, they've got to they put, him, put him back up. And they're brushing him off, you know. Uh, and we made the comment, what kind of a god is that if you've got to pick him back up, right? And, uh, and then the next day they come back, and it's fallen over again. And this time his head and his hands have broken off and are laying across the threshold of the temple. And so they not only repair or rebuild the idol of Dagon, but they said, our God's head and hands touch the threshold. So we will no longer step on the threshold of any temple of Dagon. So the priests would go in and they would step over the threshold. Well, now, you know, even as wrong-headed as it was, there was a sign of reverence there, right? Well, now God says, my priests will not even show me reverence. They're leaping over the threshold like it's some kind of a game. 
And what he's getting at here is the, is the complete devaluing of the true worship of God. He says there's all kinds of foolishness going on, sin that they're coming with in their hearts, and they're making a mockery of even the, the worship of me, let alone the worship of false gods. Furthermore, in light of their idolatry and their tainted worship, the very moral character of the people had degraded. He says in verses 8 through 9, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. You see what's happened to Israel by this point? They began with idolatry, worshiping other things along with God. That led to a devaluing of God's ways, which meant an irreverence in worship to Him. After all, why do we have to really um, revere Him so much? He's just one of many gods, right? And so we'll just kind of, you know, we'll worship this God and we'll worship this God and we'll just kind of do things the way we want to when we worship Yahweh the Lord. And then as they devalued His ways through His worship, they also began living according to their own standards not the standards that God had laid out, even to the point of Israel's leadership intentionally trying to look like the rest of the world. He said that the leadership wore pagan attire. What is he saying? What he is saying is simply this. The leaders were basically, their motto was this, we would rather look cool to the nations than honorable to God. We don't want to look like Israelites anymore. We want to look like everyone else. We don't want to be visiting foreign dignitaries and them automatically say, yep, that's, that's Israelites, all right. No, we want to look cool. We want to look like the rest of the nations. We want to look like uh, decked out like them, not in humility before our God, but in all the pomp and circumstance that the other kings are allowed to dress in. Well, frankly, that in and of itself is an entire sermon that we could, <laughs> we could spend on. But let me simply make this point. Your understanding of God will affect every part of your life. Your understanding of God will affect every part of your life. And if you understand God to be something other than what he says about himself in the Bible, then everything from how you view worship and how you view church and how you view marriage and morality, all of that will also be affected and not for the good. Not for the good. God's people have lost a proper view of God and it's caused their society to become permeated with sin. And the result is the coming day of the Lord where His wrath would be poured out. But it wouldn't just be poured out on them. Zephaniah says it's going to be poured out on Israel, but it's also going to be poured out on all the other nations of the world. God's wrath will also fall on the nations. After addressing Israel, the Lord looks around at all the nations that surround his people. And he says, don't think I have forgotten about you either. Your wickedness is just as great as that of my people, and you will feel my wrath as well. So in chapter 2 we see, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, the inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. He continues on at verse 8. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have tortured my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. 
This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. God is clear through Zephaniah. His wrath is coming, and it's coming upon the entire world. So much so that the very beginning of chapter 1, he says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's not a pretty picture, is it? I mean, that's not something you wake up and, and you read that and it inspires you with confidence and hope for the day. I mean, you read that. And it, frankly, as one commentator said, particularly as you read it over and over and over again in the prophets, it starts to get a little oppressive. James Montgomery Boyce, in his summary of, of Zephaniah, deals honestly. And he says, it says, quote, as the prophets reiterated message of coming judgment is read, it becomes oppressive. So that any serious attempt to understand and apply it often leaves a person depressed. I can think of one of the reasons why the constant message of God's judgment against sin begins to feel oppressive. is because it has massive implications for our lives. Think about what God is saying here. Not just my people, but all the nations of the earth are going to feel my wrath against their sin. What does that mean? It means there's no good found in humanity anywhere. Every person, every culture, every nation has been tainted by sin. The effects of the fall of that first man, Adam, have been felt throughout all of the world. You have people all the time, whether by the sword or whether by politics, who try to create a utopian society. They try to create a place where there's always going to be peace and everybody's going to be well-fed and there's not going to be any wars and no one's going to be mean towards anybody. And what happens? They fail. They fail and they fail and they fail. Why? Because of the sinfulness of the human heart. You can't get utopia in this world because we're all sinners. I mean, we only need to think about communism, don't we? I mean, not in any way like, you know, yay America, bad Russia. No, no, no. Just think about what communism said. We're going to create this ideal state where everybody has everything and everybody's equal. Nobody's better than anybody else. And what happened? They said, well, we've got to take authority and power first to make these changes. And then the sinfulness of the heart took over, didn't they? And the people who were in power and had the money, they said, we don't want to give this up. So instead of government becoming smaller and smaller and smaller as the plan was, government got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you had more and more people who were poor and impoverished and desperate. And a few people who had wealth and power in society. Communism failed ultimately because of this. It's a, frankly, it's a good idea. But it fails because of the sinfulness of the human heart. We will not allow ourselves to live in a utopian society. Even on the individual level, the Bible is clear. There are none that are righteous. Some appear that way. We look at some people and we think, man, they've got it all put together. I wish I could be like them. But the problem is we can't see the heart. Some of you may even be, be, be looking at your pastors and think, man, they are so put together. They are so godly. They are so far above me in their walk with God. If only for a few fleeting moments, God would reveal the hearts of us all. What would we find there but corruption? We would find things like, I may not cheat on my wife, but we 
lust after this person over here. I may not cheat on my husband, but I really wish I was married to him. I'm nice to people, but inside I'm bitter towards them and I hate them. And I don't want to forgive them for the times they've hurt me. I may close my eyes and raise my hands in worship, but inside I am full of myself and egotistical pride. Don't be fooled by the externals. The Bible is clear. All of us are sinful and will rightly be condemned by a holy God. And as Zephaniah tells us of the day of the Lord, we can look back historically. We can look back to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 where you remember the northern kingdom has already fallen. Its capital was Samaria. And they've already been taken off into captivity. And now God is saying the same thing is going to happen to you in the southern, the southern kingdom. The last two remaining tribes, you've held on for longer, you've been a little bit more godly, but in the end you've become the same as your brothers who have already been taken off into judgment. And yet, 586 wasn't that bad. I mean, God's talking about burning up the earth. He's talking about wiping out animals, about cutting off humanity forever, decreating creation. Well, that didn't happen in 586. I mean, you know, Babylonians came in and they continued for a pretty long while. So is the Bible wrong? No, but what we need to read is, uh, is the context of the fullness of the Bible. And what we see is that though 586 was in some sense the day of the Lord, it wasn't the final day of the Lord. It was a foreshadowing. It was a, a future echo of what that ultimate day of the Lord will be like. That day is still coming. We get to the New Testament and Jesus and the apostles are clear that the final day of the Lord is wrapped up with the coming of Christ. And so we cannot look back and say, yeah, that was great for them. No, the day of the Lord is still coming for us as well. The day of the Lord is coming, and it will be a day of wrath against sinners. Nevertheless, the day of the Lord is not yet here. And just as it was not yet there in Zephaniah's day, it is not yet here in our day. And so he shows us that the day of the Lord is not only a day of wrath, but it's also a day that calls for repentance. This is the second thing that we see from Zephaniah. The day of the Lord calls for repentance. Zephaniah has told us how terrible that day of the Lord will be, but the day has not yet come upon Israel. Therefore, in chapter 2, he says to them, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The word for nation that is used here is not the, no the normal word that's used for the nation of Israel. It's used for the Gentile peoples of the world. And I think, uh, th I think the point that Zephaniah is making here is that the people of Israel have become so full of sin, so corrupted, they have become like the sameless nations that surround them. They've become no better than the pagans who don't even know the Lord. Nevertheless, here is a warning to them. A warning that comes from God's grace and His mercy that says, The day of my wrath has not yet come. Therefore, you have time to repent. Before, he says, the decree takes event, bef effect. Before there, that day comes upon you with the burning anger of the Lord. Zephaniah says, Gather together again as a people and repent before the Lord. At its heart, the biblical idea of repentance means to turn. To turn away from one thing towards another. And here Israel is told to repent by turning away from their sinful lives in order to seek after three things. First, they're told to seek after the Lord. And frankly, here's where the Bible stands. We've talked about this before. Here's where the Bible stands contrary to every other religion in the world. Why? What does every other religion in the world tell you? 
get right, get cleaned up, get some religion, and the God will love you. The God will forgive you. He'll let you into heaven, right? I mean, isn't that what we hear? Isn't that what we hear people think when they talk about Christianity? But what does the Bible say? It says the exact opposite. You're not going to clean yourself up and make God love you. You go to God. He will make you right with himself, and then he will make you good. He will clean you up. And that's exactly what we see here, even under the old covenant. Go to the one true and living God. Seek after him. Get right with him. Give up the false gods. Where have they gotten you? Nowhere good, O Israel. So go back to Yahweh, the one true and living God, the God who redeemed you from Egypt and made you his people. Then and only after then, after you have sought the Lord, then he tells them that they are to seek righteousness. That they are to seek righteousness. The psalm that we read this morning is our call to worship. Psalm 115. In verse 8 it says that those who make and worship false gods become like them. It goes, all to, it goes on to say all who worship false gods become like them. Now, there's a principle that is laid out in Scripture. In fact, if we go back and look at Isaiah again in chapter 6, we can see this principle as well. And it's simply this. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. Okay, let me give you a silly example of this. I am uh, young enough to remember when Christopher Reeve was Superman. Okay, I know some of you are thinking, what about Brandon Routh? Well, there was, there was a guy before him, okay? It was before cartoons, okay? Um, uh, he, was in the, he was in Superman in the movies, and I was also fortunate enough to be able to go and see that in the theater. And I was so enamored, so cool with Superman that even though I was not red wearing the cape and the tights, I thought I could act like Clark Kent. You know, I could I could do that. So as I'm leaving the theater, I'm like kind of acting, kind of bumbling and hitting and stuff, and acting surprised and pushing my glasses up. You know, I'm imitating this thing that I like. Well, you know what? That's just natural to who we are. And in fact, the Bible says the the thing that we worship is what we become like. So here's the thing: what kind of God do you worship? What kind of God do you worship? People today worship a God who does not get angry over sin. I mean, people worship a God who is just a God of love, a God who will accept anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. No harm will come to you. He just loves you and has a plan for your life. Well, the biblical God does love you. And when you come humbly, repentant of your sin, he will accept you. He does not tell you, as we've just said, to get your life right, then come to me. No, he does accept you how you are, but... He expects you in turning away from your sin and turning to him that you actually get rid of your sin. Did we not just hear that because the Lord is holy, his people should be holy? And that if you do not turn to him, there will be a day of wrath. And here's the thing. If you worship a God who has no standards, if you worship a God that doesn't care about how people live and will just let everybody into heaven on the last day, guess how you're going to live? No standards. They're going to say, live and let live. And here, this is what Israel has done. They have worshipped false gods. Gods who, though by human invention, have come to said to require certain things of them. Yeah, go, go worship Baal with a temple prostitute. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But what did they do? They did it. And so, though their false gods in and of themselves were vile and wicked, they became like them. They became also vile and wicked. And so Zephaniah says, get rid of those false gods. Get rid of them. They have corrupted you to your soul. Turn back to the one true and living God and let yourself be transformed into His righteousness. And as you seek the Lord, as you seek righteousness, He says also seek humility. 
seek humility. Israel had made the mistake of thinking that because they were God's covenant people, the day of the Lord would only be one of blessing for them. God's not going to thump us. He's not going to do anything bad to us. We've got the covenant. Let's just go do what we want. Party on, dude. And the prophet says, it's not going to be like that. Because the covenant that you're trusting in, you've broken. And maybe you haven't read it in a while. But God says, when you obey me and you love me and you honor me, I will bless you. But when you turn your back on me and blaspheme me, I will curse you. And you've been blaspheming for a pretty long time. And God's been pretty patient with you. Year after year, which is stretched into decade after decade, which is stretched into century after century. And he has been warning you, come back to me or I will enact the covenant curses. Come back to me or I will bring out my wrath. And now, and now time is almost up. And Zephaniah says, don't go haughty in front of the Lord thinking that, that you deserve salvation, that somehow you expect God to do something for you. He says, no, come in humility. No, it's only by God's grace. It's only by God's mercy that anyone is ever spared. So where do we stand today? Where do you stand today? The day of the Lord has not yet come in its fullness. There is still time to repent before God. If you do, make sure it's a repentance that's actually driven by seeking the Lord. The Bible says there's more than one kind of repentance. Some leads to life, and some kinds of repentance do not lead to life. And frankly, we really don't need the Bible to tell us this, do we? We see this all the time. In fact, we may have just seen it a couple of days ago. Only because they're celebrities and they're famous, uh, it seems that we know more about their, their falls and their foibles, don't we? And invariably, when they do something that, by and large, either threatens their pocketbook or is still um, socially unacceptable in our society, what happens? The press release or the press conference, right? And what do they say? I'm sorry. And some of them, I think, mean it. I think some of them genuinely are sorry for what they did. But there are some, and you know what they mean, don't you? I'm sorry I got caught. I'm glad I did what I did. It was fun doing what I did. But now that my livelihood is threatened because of it, I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I was out in this bad behavior, at least behavior that you think is bad and I think is good. Is that the kind of repentance that we come before with God? I'm sorry I got caught. The Bible says that's not enough. It's not enough just to be sorry for what you did. Judas was sorry for what he did, and yet Jesus said he's still going to be in hell. It would be better if he had never been born. You see, biblical repentance is not just saying, oh, I'm sorry I got caught, or I'm sorry I did that, and now I have to face the bad effects. True repentance says, I am sorry that I offended you, God. Yes, I am sorrowful for the consequences that I now justly face, but I am now making the decision that by your grace I am going to turn away from that sin and pursue the opposite kind of lifestyle. There is a volitional, willful decision in true biblical repentance that says, though I may fall to temptation later, I don't want to. I'm actively seeking to run from sin, to flee from temptation. That's the kind of repentance that God is calling Israel to. Not just, oh, uh, we're sorry, God. Give us a slap on the wrist and everything will be okay. No. God, I've offended you. The God who saved us, the God who's poured out his blessings upon us, unlike any other nation in the world, they want to get rid of these false gods and never have them again. That's the kind of repentance, a kind of heartfelt wrongdoing. A turning to God that is called for. This is why Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, the very first thesis that he wrote, number one was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What did he mean by that? Well, initially, immediately he meant it doesn't mean do penance. 
doesn't mean you say, oh, I did something wrong. Okay, again, slap me on the wrist. I'll, I'll say, you know, I'll pay the money to the church. I'll say the Hail Marys or whatever it is, and I'll go about my business. You know, I'm sure there were times I was like that as a kid. Yeah, I got caught. Okay, give me the spank. Let me, keep, let me go on again. Okay? And Luther says, that's not what God wants. A humble and contrite heart the Lord desires. He wants us to understand that our sin fundamentally is a breach of relationship. Relationship. Us and God. That's why David can say, he's done all these horrible things, and yet he says, to you and to you alone have I sinned, O God. Yeah, I may, I may do something horrible to somebody, but you know what? That was one of God's image bearers. It's ultimately offense against him. And so this is, what, this is what we see. This is what God through Zephaniah is calling for. Having a repentance that sees that by our actions we have offended God and yet in light of his mercy we ask him to forgive us wanting more than anything not to offend him again. And so repentance is not something you just do at church. It's not something you just do with a priest or a pastor. It's a way of life that drives our relationship with God. In light of the day of the Lord and its coming. Zephaniah told the people that they were to repent before God. The day of the Lord was going to bring God's wrath. Therefore, it calls for his people to repent. And then thirdly, the day of the Lord establishes hope for the nations. The day of the Lord establishes hope for the nations. Like the other prophets, Zephaniah gives Israel a glimpse of hope for the future. He begins chapter 3 by describing some of the specific sins Israel has fallen into. He says this, speaking of Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. But then notice what happens. The day of the Lord brings judgment on sin, but it's not just judgment for annihilation. It's also judgment for purification. God says in verse 9, On that day I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Instead of sinful speech and blasphemies, God says pure speech will come from his people. Instead of proud hearts, humility will mark his people. Instead of lies and injustice characterizing them, truth and equity and peace will be the defining characteristics. And this is the most amazing thing of all. No longer will God's people only be from the nation of Israel, but from beyond Israel's borders, he will draw all kinds of people to come and to worship along with the faithful remnant that he will call out of exile. And then we read this, verse 16. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you understand what Zephaniah is saying there? 
The Lord will so cleanse His people, so expand their number, it will be so different in purity and holiness that one day God Himself will rejoice over His people. He will sing over His people. Can you imagine? What does it sound like for God to sing? I mean, think about what God did when He just spoke. What happens? Matter and energy come into existence. With power, the greatest of galaxies, boom, are there. The tiniest of butterflies are also created. And yet God says he's going to sing over his people. Might it be a new creation the prophets look forward to? That John the Apostle gives us such a vivid description of? And you may be sitting here and thinking, but God, how are you going to sing over me? How are you going to sing over me? Earlier we talked about a scene from 1 Samuel where the ark was taken. There's also another scene that kind of bookends the stories from 2 Samuel 6. The sinfulness of the people have caused the ark to be captured by the Philistines and David goes and he gets it back. And he says, we're going to bring it back where it belongs in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And so as they are bringing it in, they are celebrating. They are yelling. They are dancing. They are blowing horns. They are singing. And David himself becomes so happy, so joyous, because the ark represented God's very presence among his people. He strips off his royal robe, and he begins dancing through the streets as well. And he's dancing and and kicking up and having a big time, and that causes everybody else to cheer and to roar and to shout. And everyone is rejoicing that God is again in their midst except for at least one person, David's wife, Michael. And as she looks out the palace and she sees the procession coming down, she begins to seethe with anger. And as David comes and arrives, he actually feeds every single Israelite that had been gathered there from the king's storehouse of food. Everyone is fed in celebration of God's presence coming back to his people. And I can imagine with sweat pouring down his face, dripping off his beard, as he is carrying the royal robes now, perhaps even slung over his soil, and he is so, so, so joyful, he comes in, and he gets the cold stare from his wife. And with dripping sarcasm, she says, What a spectacle you made of yourself today. What a wonderful king you are, prancing and dancing about like some fool. And what about the servant girls? What are they going to think about you now? What is David's response? David's response is this. God did not choose your father Saul to be king over his people. He chose me. And yes, I am lowly and I am humble. But I will humble myself. I will debase myself. I will make a fool of myself all the more if it means I'm glorifying God in doing it. God pronounced judgment on Michael that until she died, she would never bear children. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Simply this. You cannot be too extravagant in the worship of God because there is no end to His glory. And God Himself sets the standard that so amazing will be the transformation that comes, so mighty and beautiful will be the work of God bringing a people to Himself from every tribe, language, people, and nation, so pure and radiantly holy forever and ever. And He will begin to sing over the work that He has done. He will begin to sing passionately, exulting over this work of salvation and the bride that He has made Himself ready 
for his own son, Jesus Christ. So he himself sets the pattern. Don't ever come into this place and be afraid to worship with your heart because of what someone else may think. Frankly, God says that means I'm not great enough in your mind. I'm not worthy enough in your mind. If, if I myself will make a spectacle of me, God says, singing with passion and joy over my people, how much more should you rejoice in the work that I am doing in your life? And again, we come back to the question that we asked last week. How will God do all this? Given the wickedness that we see in Israel, how is he going to bring all this about? And of course, the answer is Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord had its kind of initial beginnings of fulfillment during his first coming, and it's going to be fulfilled during his second. On Jesus' first coming, he so identified with us in our sin that he suffered condemnation for us on the cross. God's judgment for his people fell on their Savior Christ. And now, through the power of the cross, the gospel message has exploded across the nations so that the the good news of God's redemption does not stay in one people group, but it goes around all of the world so that people everywhere might have faith in God through Jesus Christ. But yet, after dying for sins, God did not stay dead. As we just sung, he is the risen king. And so being exalted, he promises one day I will return for my people. And when I do, the final day of the Lord will be manifest. I will separate my my people from the world and everything that is sinful will be destroyed forever. So with all that we know about the day of the Lord, how then should we live today? Peter, Christ's apostle, explains exactly how we should live in light of this coming day. In 2 Peter 3, he says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In other words, in light of the day of the Lord, now all that's going to happen, what kind of people should you be? Those that live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says the day of the Lord is coming. It may not be coming fast enough for us, but God doesn't work according to our timetable. And he is being patient and merciful, delaying his coming again so that more and more people could hear of Jesus Christ and have the opportunity to repent. Therefore, as his people, knowing that that day is coming, and when it comes, there will be no warning. It will be honest, just like a thief sneaks into your house at night. He says, we are to live our lives, first and foremost, by hastening his return. What does that mean? By proclaiming the gospel that people may repent. And as we do that, we are to live holy lives, looking forward to the new creation where sin will never be and where people will never need to fear God's wrath again. That is how we should live in light of the coming of the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your message to us that tells us of your coming day. God, we know it will be a great day of terror for those that are sinful and yet a great day of glory for those that know you. Father, help us not Father, help us not in our love of this world to be on the sidelines. Father, help us not to think with laziness 
with a lack of emotion, with a lack of understanding what you will do on the day of your return. But Father, help us by your grace through a living faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to live holy lives before you. Father, we have sought you. Help us to continue to seek you. Father, we help us to seek your righteousness in all humility, telling those around us, not only of the cross, but of the day of Christ's return, that they too may repent. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In response to this morning's message, I invite you to stand and to sing.